Good morning. We're back in uh, the book of Habakkuk. We're getting close to wrapping up this series that we've been working through, the book of Habakkuk. I'm going to start a little, little different this morning. I want to start by asking a question. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Um, I want you to think if you, if you were to leave today to go home tonight and you get to your home and there's uh, men there waiting for you when you get home and they inform you that you have two options. You can either deny Jesus Christ and who he is. Or that you will be put to death the next day, tomorrow. I want you just to think about that for a second. You're faced with that reality, one or the other. I want you to think, maybe uh, you're still exploring the claims of Jesus Christ, that you don't know him personally. And maybe you'd say, well, that's easy. I would just say, I deny him. That's no problem. But if you are a believer and you really hold to that, what would that be like? I want you to think about what would those few hours be like you've got. Say you get home and they say, we'll be back in the morning to get you. You've got 12 hours. What would those few hours look like? I want you just to think about that for a minute. And then I'm going to tell you a story. I want us just to think about where this actually happened. Essentially, this point stands is uh, I'm going to tell you the story of a guy named Nicholas Ridley. If you've ever heard of Nicholas Ridley and he had a friend named Hugh Lattimore and these two men. Um, going back in church history, were put to death in the 1500s. And they were put to death because what they said is they held to Christ alone and Scripture alone, and they would not uh, pledge their allegiance to the Pope. And they were burned at the stake in England in 1555. And what we have is in the uh, Fox Books of Martyr. If you ever heard that, John Fox wrote a book about martyrs. And he, he retells the story of Ridley. And uh, Dr. Ridley, it says, the night before he would die... The, the, the day before he was burned at the stake, that evening he went home, or where he was being held, and he had his last dinner. And what Fox records for us is that at his last dinner, he was telling everyone that was there that he was going to have his marriage tomorrow, and invited them all to come. And Fox says that he showed himself to be as merry as he ever was at any time before. And then it, he goes on to tell us that his brother was there with him, and his brother offered to stay up that night with him. He said, I'll stay the night with you and we'll we'll stay up all night together. And to, and to that, Ridley said, no, no, I'm going to bed and to sleep quietly tonight is as quietly tonight as I ever have in my life. So he says he tells everybody there to be he's in the best spirits he's ever been. in. he tells them I'll come tomorrow because my marriage is tomorrow. And then he says, I'm going to sleep better than I ever have. And the story ends with this. He gets up the next day and they take him and they burn him at the stake in the middle of London. And this was his last words. He says, oh, heavenly father, I give unto you the most hearty thanks for thou hast called me to be a professor of thee even to death. And that's how his his life ended. That's how Dr. Ridley's life, those last few hours, what they look like. And as I asked that question, if you had to say 12 hours left. Is that what went through your mind? I'll have a meal with my family and I'll be in the best spirits possible and then I'll sleep really well and then I'll wake up and I'll thank God that I could die proclaiming his name. The reality is for most of us, that seems crazy. I mean, even if you're a professing believer, it's hard to go, wow, would would that be what I would be like? Is that the way I would approach it? The reality is for a lot of us, we probably would think, Habakkuk chapter one, what we looked at a few weeks ago, would make more sense because Habakkuk chapter one was Habakkuk, the prophet, looking around at his times and saying, what in the world is going on? What he says in chapter one is he says, 
Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Those words almost seem perfect for Dr. Ridley as he's about to be killed for professing Jesus's name. But yet here was here was this man that had this uh, peace and this great uh, comfort about what was to happen. And we saw this in the book of Habakkuk. We've been in Habakkuk and we see Habakkuk crying out to God. And he says this and God's answer comes back to Habakkuk. Yes, there's a lot of terrible things going on and they're going to get worse. And Habakkuk says, what in the world are you talking about? And God says, then he tells him, I'm in control. And even though you don't understand how I'm working, I'm in control. And that's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. And this week we come to chapter three. And the interesting thing that happens is Habakkuk suddenly has this transformation. And he's a lot more like Dr. Ridley that was about to be killed. Suddenly Habakkuk, there's a great change. We see a great growth in Habakkuk's, uh, just his outlook and what he's saying from chapter one to chapter three. And we're going to look at chapter three today. And that's kind of what we're going to be asking. How can someone like uh, uh, Dr. Ridley, Nicholas Ridley, how could he have that peace? And how does Habakkuk suddenly have this change? That's kind of what we're asking today. How do you have that faith in hard times where you have that abiding peace? So let's look at that. We're going to read Habakkuk chapter three. We're actually going to read the whole chapter. We're going to and then we're going to ask those questions as we work through it. But first, let's read through Habakkuk chapter three. And it says a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst, midst of the years, revive it in the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of, of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from the bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on the deep, gave forth its voice and it's lifted its hand on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place and the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from neck from thigh to neck, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I heard and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon People who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, 
and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray and then we're going to look at those that passage. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray this morning that as we look at this uh, wonderful prayer of Habakkuk, that we would see clearly how it is that we can rejoice, that we can praise you in all things and at all times, regardless of circumstances. I pray that you would give us that lasting and abundant peace in you. I pray that you would reveal through your word and your spirit coming and opening our eyes to see that we would see more clearly who you are and what you've done for us, that it would, uh, that you would grant us this wonderful peace that's only available in you. I thank you for your word and what, you've, uh, what you teach us through it. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So as we look at this this morning, that's what we're really talking about, uh, the thought of how can you have such... A, uh, a strong faith, even in the hardest of times. So we're going to ask three questions as we look at this this morning. How, what we're looking at is this remarkable growth from Habakkuk from chapter one to chapter three. And we're going to ask uh, what changed? How did that happen? And then what is the outcome? So what changed? How did that happen? And what is the outcome? So what changed? What changed for Habakkuk from chapter one to chapter three? If you would just flip back with me, if you've got a Bible to Habakkuk one, I'm going to read verse three for you. This is going back a few weeks ago, so we're going to review just a little bit. But Habakkuk says in verse three of chapter one, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And we're going back for just a second because I want us to think as we're thinking about what changed. I want us to think about what Habakkuk's focus was in chapter one and what you see there in verse three and just those first four four, can't talk the first four verses of chapter one. What you see is Habakkuk crying out to God, but what he's seeing What he's saying is he sees all around him. I see iniquity and violence and destruction and contention and justice is perverted. And what you get as you look at those verses is Habakkuk is looking out at his world and he's completely focused on what's going on, what's swirling around him. And it's not good. Remember, his original complaint is even just about his own country and Judah, his own people and how they are rooted in idolatry and they've turned from God. And that's what he's talking about. So what you see at the very beginning before God answers him is he's he's completely obsessed and looking at what's going on around him. And he says, this is what I see, violence and destruction. And then right after that, God answers him and he tells him, he says, I'm doing a work in your day that you wouldn't believe if I told you. And he says, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans and they're going to wipe you out. And that really throws Habakkuk. So the first part of God's answer is, yes, I know what's going on and I have a plan and I'm going to allow your people that have turned from me to be chastened by the worst of the worst. And Habakkuk is dumbfounded. How in the world can this be? So look at verse 13, because then his focus shifts slightly. God's first answer and his focus shifts a little bit. And he says in verse 13, You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And what happens is Habakkuk starts to question God and he starts to say his his focus shifts from all the awful things around him. And it's just a slight focus. Now he starts to compare Judah, his his land, his people with the Chaldeans, because God says, I'm going to use the Chaldeans. 
So then he gets all caught up and well, where we're not quite as bad as them. That's what he starts to do. He starts to compare one level of evilness with another. They're worse. They're, they're dirtier than we are. And that's what he starts to see. And his, his, his focus shifts, but then it shifts to just looking at this comparison. And he's still frustrated and he still doesn't understand. And he gets to the end of the chapter and he says, I don't get this, God, but I'm going to wait on you. And then the last two weeks, what we saw is God answers him. And this starts to give us some clue to what changes, what changes between chapter one and chapter three. What happens is God answers him and he tells him. We talked about a couple weeks ago how uh, part of the reason is everything is messed up and it's so wrong is you have all these idols. The whole world is putting all these things in my place. That's what God's telling him. You've turned to all these other things and you've made it about all this other stuff and all these things will betray you. And he tells them, but then he also says, but in spite of that, in spite of the fact that you've turned away from me and you've put all these things in my place, I am still at work. And he says in chapter two, verse 14, that's where he tells him, my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So what he tells Habakkuk is, here's why some of the things are going on that are, but I am still at work and I'm still in control and I'm still God and I'm still sovereign. And that's what the way chapter two ends. And then all of a sudden we, we open to chapter three today. And as we start to see Habakkuk's prayer, we don't know exactly how much time has gone in between these. But the reality is all the stuff surrounding Habakkuk that he was upset about, they haven't even none of it's been resolved. If anything, it's gotten worse because what, what really happens is he says, look at how messed up everything is, God. And God says, yes, I know. And I'm at work here and it's going to get worse for a time. So actually what Habakkuk gets from God is it's going to get worse. So the so if anything, the uh, circumstances have gotten worse rather than better. But Habakkuk's in a completely different place now. Look at what he says in chapter three. And I just want us to see the comparison from chapter one to chapter three. In verse two, he says, oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. And oh, Lord, do I fear verse four? He says his brightness was like the light. Talking about God in verse six, he said he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. His were the everlasting ways. If you skip down to verse 12, he says you march through the earth. You thresh the nations in anger. In verse 13, you went out for the salvation. You crushed the head of the wicked. You pierced with their own arrows. Do you see the difference between chapter one and chapter three about where Habakkuk's focus is? Chapter one, it's all the stuff that is swirling around him. This is so messed up. It's violence and destruction and perverted perversion and justice goes forth perverted. And then chapter three, suddenly it's all about God. You do this and you go here and you are the same and you do this. Do you see the difference? What change for Habakkuk is his perspective has changed. He's no longer completely overwhelmed by the surroundings because he's focused on God now. Because in chapter two, God tells him, I'm in control and I'm sovereign and I'm the one over all this. And it completely changes the way Habakkuk looks at it. And his focus is now completely on God. So then the second question we ask is, how does that happen? How do you go from being rooted in all that stuff around you to this focus of where you're focused on God? And there's a few steps we see because we really look at it, all of Habakkuk, really, as we work our way through the chapters. 
what you see is Habakkuk going to God really at the first the very first thing. And there's four things we're going to look at that you see that changes his perspective. But the first one is all the things that we normally put our faith in start to be stripped away. Because Habakkuk goes to him and he's asking about Judah at the beginning. That's really what he's saying. We're your people. We're your chosen people. What's going on? And, and then we saw when God says, well, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans in. He says, well, wait a second. We're not as bad as them. And what Habakkuk was expecting, what he thought the answer would be is God's going to raise up Judah and bring revival in our land. And then that'll fix things. And God says, well, no, actually, we're going to take them down further before that happens. And what you see is Habakkuk, it starts to strip away the things he was putting his faith in. God's going to use my people. He's going to use this. And he says, no, I'm not. I'm going to do it a different way. And what that does is it starts to remove the things in which Habakkuk thought God was going to work. And it strips away the other things that he puts his faith in. And when that happens, it leaves only God. There's nowhere else to turn. And sometimes we talked about that really the very first week that that's what has to happen. Sometimes we have to be taken all the way down before we can be built back up, before we'll really turn to him. And that's really the first step here. But then the second step we saw when we started to look at chapter two, because he tells them, he says, I'm going to wait on you, Lord. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and I'm going to wait for your answer to come back. And then the Lord's answer says, write this vision, make it plain on tablets. So that he may run who reads it. The second part that happens. First, God strips away the things you're putting your faith in. But then the second part of this change of perspective is Habakkuk dwells deeply in God's word. God gives him his word. He gives it to him. And you see this in the context, not just chapter two, although chapter two was God's word to Habakkuk about what was going to happen. Because he says, write this down. It's God's word. But it's not just there. It's all the way through chapter three, because what becomes clear when you really read chapter three and you start to see what he's saying and you look at it over and over, look at verses uh, four through eight. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power before him with pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Uh, verse eight, he says, was your wrath against the rivers? O Lord, was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? And he keeps going through. Look at verse 11, what he says there. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. So what's he talking about when you look at chapter three and here he's completely focused on God. He goes through all these things. And what you start to see is in verses four and five is an allusion to Mount Sinai and what God did at Mount Sinai. In verse eight, you get the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan River. In verse 11, you get Joshua's victory at Gibeah when he had the long day. He made the, earth, the, the sun stand still so they could they could uh, win the battle. And the point I'm making with all that is what you see is here. He's recounting all the things that God's done that have been revealed in Scripture. So what's clear is Habakkuk has been spending a lot of time in God's word. And then he's recounting it back to him. This is how you moved and this is what you did. And this is when you did it in the way it happened. So you see Habakkuk's perspective being changed because everything's stripped away. So then he runs to God's word and he sees all the ways that God has been moving. And really, that brings us to the third thing. The third thing is remembering what God has done. Look at verse 18. This is very common for scripture in general. But verse 18 says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It says the same thing twice. Really, that's what it's saying. I will rejoice and then I will take joy. And that happens a lot. It's all through the Psalms. It's all through Scripture. We get something and then we repeat it. There's a lot of Psalms like that. Psalms 139, it's just repeated over and over and over and over. And the reason it's repeated, you ever think about that? You ever think why we have four Gospels instead of just one? The same story four different times from different perspectives? It's so that we go back and we read it over and over and we remember what God's done. And we revisit it and we see it again and we see it again and then we see a little more of who he is and we see a little more clearly who he is. And it gets pushed down into our heart that much more and then we revisit it again and we revisit it again. And you see this over and over, the repeating and the repetition. Um, I had a professor in seminary that used to say, I love that she would say, um, don't you dare check out when you hear somebody tell a Bible story that you've heard a lot of times. She said, when somebody, if I stand up today and say, I'm going to, we're going to cover David and Goliath. And 99% of you have heard that story. If you grew up in the church, you've probably heard it a thousand times. And you go, yeah, 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 David and Goliath. And what she would say, what my professor would say, is she said, don't ever do that because you've never heard that story where you are today. You may have heard it six months ago, or you may have heard it a year ago or 10 years ago, but you haven't heard it where you are today. And if God's word is living and active and the Holy Spirit is moving and opening your eyes, you may see things in David and Goliath that you never even saw were there. I was sharing that. I said that to some of the guys on Tuesday morning. I was reading the Sermon on the Mount this week and we talked about some of the Beatitudes in the Tuesday morning prayer breakfast. And I was seeing things I'd never seen before. I was reading it the night before and going, I've read that 20 times, thousand times, probably the, the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over, and then there it was. It was like it's brand new. So repeating and going back and remembering, and God reveals new things. And you're reminded. You're reminded of what he's done and how great he is. And it's not just reading scripture. That's why it's so important to be in a community of believers for us to be together and talking together and telling what's going on in our lives. I love to hear people's testimonies. Because when people start to tell their testimony, it takes you back to remembering when you became a believer, when you first understood how God loves you and you see it in a new way. And hearing that and us together and sharing those things, we remember and it becomes clearer and it becomes more clear. And then that leads us to the last thing. And you see it in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. What happens is when we do those steps and we work through, the big picture is revealed. We begin to see the way God is working all through time. The more we see how he's worked before and how he's working through other people, we start to see that God is moving and he has a plan and all of it is working towards an end that he ordained from before the foundation of the earth. And we start to catch a glimpse and we see the big picture. And that's how your perspective begins to change, because you see how he's working all through time and where it's headed and why and the way he's going to do it. And then suddenly the things where you're sitting in right now that are surrounding you, suddenly they start to fade away a little bit. Because you start to focus on what he's doing and how he's doing it and how his plan is working together. The neat thing is when you read Habakkuk and you think about this, here's Habakkuk writing 600 years Before Jesus was to come. 
And what he was doing, though, when you really think about what he's doing in this chapter is he's going back and he's dwelling on the gospel that he has. And what I mean by that is the gospel. When we say the gospel, the gospel is the good news about what God has done for us. And when we talk about the gospel today, the ultimate thing God has done for us is sending Jesus Christ for us. But Habakkuk, Jesus hadn't come yet. So what his gospel was, was how God had gone out and come forth and rescued his people and all these different things. How God had shown up and done for his people what they couldn't do for themselves. And you see Habakkuk gets the idea of the big picture in verse 13 that you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. How much more do we see that today because of Jesus? That he has gone out for us. That God came to us. Here Habakkuk was just seeing a glimpse, but we have the fullness of the picture. That God has come to us to save us, to do what we couldn't do on our behalf. And that's the thing that completely changes all of it. Because that's the big picture. That's the big story. God is at work to redeem all of creation. And he's to redeem individuals that he's called, that he can save them by what he's doing on our behalf. I love, I kept reading this, and I'm not saying that Habakkuk is saying this in this chapter because he's not. I don't think he could see this and make this connection. But if you look at uh, verse 13, he says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Do you know where the very first promise of the gospel is in Scripture? It's in Genesis 3. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's cursing the snake and he's telling the snake, which we know from Scripture, the snake was Satan. And he's cursing the snake and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking about the offspring that would come through Eve. He's talking about Jesus Christ in verse 15 of Genesis 3. When I read Habakkuk and it says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, to crush the head of the house of the wicked. Jesus Christ did that when he went to the cross. He crushed the head of the wicked that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. Do you see how that's the big picture? That's the big story that completely changes our perspective. All of history was God going out to save his people through Jesus Christ. So he could redeem. So he could do what we couldn't do. That's how you can get to the story we started with this morning. Dr. Ridley going to be killed for standing up for Jesus. And he says, thank you, Lord. That I could proclaim your name even to death because he saw the big picture. He saw what this life is about. It's the same with Habakkuk. He's getting a glimpse of what the whole big picture is so he can say in verse 18 or verse 17, even though everything around me is falling apart, there's famine, we've got nothing, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of my salvation And that's the last part. What's the outcome? The outcome is you can rejoice in all things. You can praise his name in all situations when you see the big picture. 
And the problem is, for all of us, it is so easy to get sucked into right where we are, right in our time in history, which James says is just a breath. It's just a speck of time in the, in the whole overarching theme. But when we start to dwell deeply in God's word and we step back, we start to see that and it changes our perspective and when we can rejoice in all things. I want to end just with this, this one thought, and I thought it was neat. I would read this this week or I heard it. Um, Jonathan Edwards, if you know who Jonathan Edwards was, great uh, pastor, Puritan pastor in the 1700s, uh, probably considered maybe the greatest American preacher. His very first sermon, when he was 18 years old, he preached on, it was called Christian Happiness. Basically, how, what we're talking about, how you can have joy in all things, and he had three points. And the simplicity is so great that I just wanted us to end and share with this. And Jonathan Edwards said this, his three points were all the bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away from us. And number three, the best is yet to come. And when you realize this, the big picture, those three things come into crystal clear focus because of what Christ did for us. And you can rejoice in all things at all times, no matter what the circumstances Let's let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the way that you have gone out for the salvation of your people. That you are not a far off God who sits by and just tells us to trust you, but you come to us to do what we could never do, to do it on our behalf. We thank you for that. I pray that you would help us uh, corporately as a body of believers to encourage one another daily with the, uh, the big picture, that we would be able to step back and see how you're moving and how your, uh, your plans are unfolding, and we would encourage one another with that, that we would focus completely and totally on you to where all the other things fade away and we can rejoice in all things. We thank you for what you've done for us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.